0: And why would that be important? Because the very structure of the whole Pentateuch is messianic. So, if the whole structure of the whole Pentateuch is messianic, it would be very important genealogically to know that no, the seed is not the son of Pharaoh, the seed is not the son of all these other people. It's not from Hagar. Um, it's specifically according to the promise of God. So, the people reading Genesis for the first time, they would see this. I mean, we. Maybe we don't see it because we have other interests in our head. Sure. But those are questions that would be germane to them. Okay. Like, wait a minute, I heard a story about Abraham going down to Egypt. Mm-hmm. How do we know that the child is not Pharaoh's son? Right. Well, you will read the narrative and say, oh, okay, now that we have the benefit of the whole Pentateuch in one book, mm-hmm. okay, we can actually see how it plays out over time.
1: Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, our guest is once again, Dr. Jerome Skinner, professor of Old Testament exegesis and theology at Andrews University. If you haven't already checked out last week's episode with him on how to read the Bible, be sure to do so. There are lots of insights into the kind of approaches and methods that will help you when studying scripture. This week. We are applying our knowledge from last week to the book of Genesis. We discuss topics like, is the book of Genesis a scientific account of creation? How early in the Torah are we introduced to the concept of the Messiah? And how central is this to the theme of the Old Testament? Before we get started, we wanna thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. My co-host today is Michelle Odinma. You can find her at the handle at Michelle Odinma Music. And our guest today, Dr. Jerome Skinner, can be found at the handle at Skins2K2. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is At Next. Genesis has been a really fun book to study in your class. Uh, right now I'm taking a, a family through the the book of Genesis, it's so impactful, mm. kind of the framework that you were giving. Um, so applying some of that methodological approaches that you were talking about, like in comparison to other ancient Near Eastern literature, how is like the accounts of creation and different accounts like a polemic against kind of different ancient Near Eastern uh, culture and literature?
0: Sure. Um, first, polemic means like an argument against. Um, And this is why I'd say you do need to do a little detective work, because the way that we're arguing about the creation narrative today has little to nothing to do with why it was originally written. Mm. Um, People are trying to squeeze, you know, uh, science into Genesis. And I say, was that what Moses was thinking? Sure. Um, So when he wrote Genesis, probably near the time of the Exodus, okay, Um, So when he's writing, he's writing with a specific intent, okay? They're coming out of a land of polytheism, and they're going into a land of polytheism. Right. So how would you tell people about what it means to be in the image of God where they don't confuse that with these polytheistic nations? Because every nation had a creation narrative. That's the first... Um, thing that I know is very different than our world today. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone had some type of creation narrative. So Moses is saying, okay, how am I going to tell the people what it means to be a child of God without them confusing it with something that may look similar? Mm. Because some of the ancient Near Eastern um, narratives do have creation out of the spoken word. Mm. So, okay, so how do we not confuse the two? So actually the way that Moses writes the story It's not a detailed analysis of what happened on each day, okay? Mm -hmm. But the narrative is told in such a way where you would understand that he's saying, this is not a God. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. On day four, in verse 14, it says in, in Genesis chapter one, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years." and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if he had named the Hebrew word for sun, Shemesh, yeah. remember they didn't, well, maybe you don't remember, but they didn't have vowels.
3: I remember. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I do.
0: <laughs> so Shemesh looks like Shemash, who was mm-hmm. the God of judgment in the ancient Near East. And the word Uriach in the ancient Near East Um, For Hebrews, it would mean moon, but in their context, it's a deity. So he doesn't Mm -hmm. say sun and moon. He just says two great lights Mm -hmm. and stars also. Okay, so that's one point. He's trying to help these people not fall into paganism. So he's explaining things in a way for them not to confuse where they're coming from or where they're going with a deity. Okay, so when he, he names the sea, again, ancient Near Easterners saw the sea as Yam, the sea, the the dread God. So how do you let the people of Israel know, no, it's just water. So he just talks about, oh, he just created the sea and out of them came these um, animals. So you just see it as something um, non-aggressive, something that God just spoke and it just happened. So we don't have to be afraid of it. Yeah. Okay, but the one that I wanted to focus on... The most is man and woman. So I want us to read Genesis one twenty-seven. Okay. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now for us English speakers, it just seems like, oh, male and female. This is actually not the word for male and female. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's the word zakar and the word nekava. Okay, so the word zakar... Um, is used typically for memorial stone, so it's something that protrudes. Hmm. And the word nekava comes from the root nekav, which means to pierce. Hmm. So you have you can use your your thinking caps, <laughs> um, sanctified thinking caps. Something that protrudes and something that is pierced. Hmm. Now, why would God talk about men and women that way? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter four
2: hmm. and
0: verse sixteen, and I think this explains why. Hmm. He says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 16, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And it's those two words Mm. again.
2: Mm. So
0: again, the creation narrative is you're made in the image of God Mm. and he gave you a physiology, Mm. an anatomy and a physiology. Don't go worship that. Mm. Yeah. Okay, mm. so it's it is polemical. It's this is how creation really happened. More importantly, this is how you're to re- relate to what it means to be human in the world that God created. Mm. So you don't go worship the things that God yeah. just created. Sure. Yeah. So what it means to be in God's image is is deeper than we tend to give credit for when it comes to understanding the narrative in the Torah. Mm. You know, for us, we're not thinking idol worship. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. we're just thinking, oh, did. You know, what did he do with this element and this element? How did that fit together? Right. No, for them, it was don't worship phallic symbols. You know, right. don't don't even make them to worship them. Why? Right. Because you were made in God's image and mm. he already gave you that for mm. a specific function. Mm. Sure. So. so
3: along the lines of, of being human and what that means, um, you've talked about six different aspects of, sure. of of what we find in Genesis. Can you expound on that a little bit more?
0: Sure. So again, this close reading experience, I started to see the Bible does give us hints at what it means to be human. It's not like uh, Kierkegaard or Jean-Paul Sartre trying to go into the the psychological depths of existentialism, Sure. but it does tell us um, what it means to be in the image of God is more holistic than we tend to give credit for. So um, the six things were moral, were social, we're intellectual, we're emotive, we're physical, and we're spiritual. So I'll just go point by point. Yeah. So first, we're moral because God gives Adam and Eve commands.
2: Mm-hmm. And you
0: would only give someone a command if they have the the moral or the ethical foundation to understand it and apply it. Right. Okay. Yeah. We're social because God told them to uh, be fruitful and multiply and then he said it's not good for you to be alone mm. so it, we usually read that just in the context of marriage <laughs> yeah. but it's more in depth than that it's just yeah. you're a social being so it's not good for you to be um alone they're intellectual we see God bring the animals to Adam to sure. see what he would name them he sure. didn't tell him name, name it, this. it this right no he says what would you name that mm. and then Adam would look and say oh that looks like this mm-hmm. okay where motive beings, and I always point this out um, to my wife, um, when Adam saw Eve, mm. he did not burst forth in didactic logic. <laughs> <laughs> he saw her and he, the brother broke forth in poetry.
3: Right. Okay,
0: That's right. And it's beautiful poetry if you can read it Amen. in the original language. <laughs> So I know as, as modern day people, we don't tend to associate, you know, emotions with God. You know, you need to yeah. be austere and strict or you have people who go to the, the other extreme, but um, God gave Adam that capacity yeah. and then he gave Eve the capacity too. So we know we have that capacity and we know they're physical beings because the only way to be fruitful and multiply is to be physical. And by the way, I want to uh, just touch on that. Um, I think because we're, we haven't read the text in this way as a more holistic um, picture of what it means to be human. Um, the the church historically has had a problem with sexuality,
2: sure.
0: you know, and so if young people don't learn it from the church, where are they where else are they going to learn it from? Yeah. Right. Um, so that was when I came back to to the Lord. That was the first thing I had to deal with, you know, because. I wasn't always a Christian, you know, and so I had a certain mentality and God had to really fix that. And so I had to go to these narratives and say, "Okay, um, how should I see sexuality as a blessing Mm -hmm. rather than something you have to go do in secret or or away from people? Mm -hmm. So when I saw that this is actually part of the way that God made us, it gave me existential peace. I'm like, okay, it's not something dirty. It's not something we need to be ashamed of. But God tells us what it should look like. Mm. And so if we can tell our young people, look, God made you a holistic being Mm -hmm. and sin can manifest itself in different ways based on, you know, nature, nurture, what have you. I think it would give young people more of a clear understanding that, hey, this is not something I need to keep secret and hide away. It's something actually I can talk to God about. Right. You know, right. And then finally, he made them spiritual beings. We know he gave them the Sabbath for rest. So when I started seeing this, I said, okay, so that's what he gave to them. What did it look like?
2: Hmm. And
0: then we see it it experienced in um, Adam and Eve's life. It's very brief, but there's enough there to really tell you. How are they moral? How are they social? How are they intellectual? How are they emotive? How are they physical? How are they spiritual? And if you notice, right after sin,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right after sin, we start to see all these elements come into full play. Mm. And so really, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, well, Revelation 19, we see God trying to restore in humanity his image. Mm. And if God is trying to restore in humanity his image, all of these areas of life need to be addressed.
2: Sure,
3: you yeah.
0: cannot just address the brain. right? Because right. if you true. do that, you, you can become really cold and isolated. Yeah, You know, because it has to be rational. It has to make sense. Well, what about the emotive side of life? Yeah. You know, yeah. even that even affects the way that we read the Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me, going back to methodology. If you know God created us to be emotive, you understand why 40% of the Old Testament is in poetry. Right.
1: I love that. That's yeah. so beautiful. Me yeah. too. Yeah.
0: So when I started to make, start making these connections, I said, wow. So each narrative, I'm trying to figure out, okay, What's the problem with humanity here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now I'm not looking at it necessarily to try to solve my, excuse me, existential problems first and foremost. That comes, but it Mm. comes later. But just, okay, God, show me in this instance of human brokenness, Mm. what area do we see being affected? And then if you do deal with it, how do you deal with it? Mm. So learning this for me was um, helpful because I started to see. That religion is not just information. Sure. Okay. It's not just behaviorism, but it's God really addressing the totality of what it means to be human. Mm. You know, and and Kierkegaard, he was a Christian, but um, existentialists don't have like a corner market Mm -hmm. on what it means to be human. Like, whenever you use words like that, people are like, you're an existentialist. (laughs) Like, (laughs) no, I'm a biblical, you know, disciple of Jesus. And I try to show people it's not um, just a story about a fall, but it's a fall from a certain type of life hmm. and the restoration to that life again.
3: Wow. Sure. I love that. I, I just, and just a comment, it just, I guess it kind of makes me understand more the, the impact that sin had in, on our whole being. So yeah. all of those six aspects yep. were affected. Yep. So, I mean, every part of us needs to be restored right Amen. Hmm. so uh, there's one thing that you talk about um, that i appreciated
1: help helping me to give the framework of like what's happening in genesis and uh we talked you talked about that there is a a promise there are threats to the promise and then there is god's salvation bringing about an ultimate deliverance and i was wondering if you could walk us through some of those examples and what that looks like in genesis and and uh why was it framed in this type of way
0: sure um if you have a computer program, talking to the audience, <laughs> if you can take the chapter and verse divisions off your um, iPad or your Samsung, I don't know what people are. <laughs> um, I'm not getting a, a financial kickback from talking about <laughs> Apple. No. Um, but if you can do that and then ask yourself a question if I didn't know where a section started and stopped, how would I know how the narrative is moving? Mm. So I did that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those nerds. And I said, <laughs> let me see. And actually, I, I still try to do that today because it didn't have chapters and verses. Okay. So I was reading through, reading through multiple times, by the way. It's not like you're going to do this one time and poof. Yeah. no. So I started to say, okay, what happened in the beginning? We see men created, mankind mm-hmm. created, mankind have a fall. And then God gives a promise, okay? Once I saw that, I said, okay, so everything that's following now has to in some way deal with this promise that God gave in Genesis
2: 3.15.
0: So first he gives it to Adam and Eve. He Mm. tells them a seed is going to come. And the first thing that we hear in Genesis 4 is what?
3: The The Cain. Right. Mm -hmm. She
0: says, I have gotten a man. man From the Lord, yeah. But that's the thing. We think it's from the Lord. There is Mm -hmm. no preposition, preposition.
3: Mm.
0: and I'm a nerd so again I was looking at the grammatical syntax Moses actually uses that for people who want to go check me
3: <laughs>
0: check if I'm saying is true in Genesis twenty-six thirty-four, when it talks about Judith that same grammatical structure and they don't mm. say from, from, from Judah uh,
3: oh, okay I see, I see, they
0: just yeah. say um. the wife Judith Mm. so she probably thought and I think she thought she was having the Messiah because that's the last thing that they heard from God you're going to have a son
1: mm. so it okay. says I've gotten a man, the, the Lord.
0: Lord Right. Mm. Um, Dr. Dukan's commentary on Genesis actually explores that more mm. so if people wanted to have a good um, reading of that passage mm. so she thinks she has a son or she thinks she has this, this figure that is promised what
3: happens? He becomes a murderer. He's a murderer.
0: <laughs> so wait a minute. We, we thought that the seed is going to come and redeem. Why is, you know, the, my son murdering my other son? So then there, there's a threat now. One son is a murderer. One son is dead. How does God rectify that? Hmm. At the end of chapter four, who do you have? Seth. 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 Hmm. Okay. So things are back on track. Seth, that's when people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Then you have a problem. Hmm. What, what happens in chapter 5, and chapter 6?
3: the flood, the, right? Uh, yeah, the wickedness. Right. You have yeah.
0: the covenant or the faithful line in 5. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. But then in 6, we hear every imagination of right. everybody is evil right. to the fact that God's going to destroy the whole earth. Sure,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. So then
0: it's like, wait a minute. How is God's promise going to come to fruition mm-hmm. if we're all destroyed? Right. And it's interesting that in Genesis 6, 17 or 18, it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then he tells him specifically, I will reestablish. That's another grammatical point. Mm -hmm. I will reestablish my covenant with you. Mm -hmm. And then soon as the flood narrative ends, what do we hear about? His sons. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're hearing about, yes, in the tents of um,
3: Shem. Shem, Shem. Right. Mm -hmm. So
0: we're back on track. Mm -hmm. Then what happens next?
3: Ham messes up.
0: And the Tower of Babel. Oh,
3: yeah. So now
0: we had we had the family together, but now nobody can understand each other.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: How is God going to deal with that? Genesis 12 with Abraham. What does he mm-hmm. tell Abraham now? You're going to be a blessing to who?
1: Everybody. Everyone, all,
0: all the nations. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But now he specifically tells him in your seed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we know it's specifically going to be through Abraham's seed. So now to, to make a long story short. Think of it, every conflict in the book of Genesis. Mm. It's like things are getting on track and then something happens. Mm. For instance, Genesis 13, Lot, Genesis yeah. 14, the war with the king um, Catalomer. So you have these conflicts. How does God solve it? Abraham mm. wins and Lot mm. goes to Sodom. Mm. And then at the end of that experience, what does Abraham do? Who does he meet?
3: A Melchizedek.
0: Melchizedek. I have a funny mm-hmm. story.
3: Okay. <laughs> I love the stories. <laughs> I was,
0: um, I was with my mentor, and we were cutting down trees across the street from the church that we were at, and there was this uh, inebriated gentleman. That's that's what we'll say, and he's we were talking, and he said I had a question, and we were like, okay, go ahead, and now I'm just you know getting my chops, learning the ropes, yeah. and he said I want to talk to you about Chief Macadite. <laughs> He said, what? He said, Chief McAidite. And we we're like, what are you talking about? He said, you know, the guy in Hebrew is Chief McAidite. And I said, no, Chesedek. And he said, yeah, Chief Maccadite. <laughs> and I said,
1: oh, my goodness.
0: I said, hey, at least he knows where to find him. So there was some redeeming quality. But that, that story about Melchizedek introduces important themes in terms of the promise to Abraham, and that's why Jesus is used, or Mel, Melchizedek is used as a type of Jesus later on in Hebrews,
2: mm.
0: okay? <laughs> so then things seem good, but then what happens next? Hagar. Right. right. Okay, Sarah is barren. She's trying to negotiate how can we get the seed in the family? We'll do it through Hagar. Mm. Yeah. And then God has to come in the next chapter and say, no, not through her, through your very loins. Yeah. Mm. And I always find it interesting, and I mentioned this in class, how people always mention that Sarah laughed. Mm. But if you read the previous chapter, Abraham it says God. Abraham yeah. laughed. Yeah. So it's just a little interesting point about what we emphasize when we tend to read the Bible. Mm. Yeah. So then you have this, again, this conflict, you know. Is a seed going to be born? Even, even the narratives when they go to Egypt, mm. think about it. What would the people during that time be concerned about? Is the seed the son of Pharaoh or Abraham? Mm. Is the seed the son of the king of Gerar or Abraham? Right. When, when um, Rebecca is taken, is the seed of Isaac from Isaac or from the king of Gerar? Interesting. So when the narrative is being told, it's, it's trying. Moses is trying to help us see no, the promise comes through the way God said it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And every time something popped up that would threaten it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: he fixes it. Wow. Right. And why would that be important? Because the very structure of the whole Pentateuch is messianic. Mm-hmm. I don't have time, uh, right. obviously. But this it, is
1: so good. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: So if the whole structure of the whole Pentateuch is messianic, it would be very important genealogically to know that, no, the seed is not the son of Pharaoh. The seed is not the son of all these other people. It's not from Hagar. Um, It's specifically according to the promise of God. Mm. So the people reading Genesis for the first time, they would see this. I mean, we maybe we don't see it because we have other interests in our head. Mm, But those are questions that would be germane to them. Like, wait a minute, I heard a story about Abraham going down to Egypt. Mm -hmm. How do we know that the child is not Pharaoh's son? Well, you will read the narrative and say, oh, God said no. Or with the king of Gerar, how do we know? Oh, the narrative is telling us that. Because, again, that would be important for their time. Right. Okay, now that we have the benefit of the whole... Um, Pentateuch in one book, mm-hmm. okay. We can actually see how it plays out over time, right? Whereas th- they would just be reading or hearing about these um, narratives for the first time and would be like, Oh, this is answering questions that we have, not mm-hmm. questions that a 21st century person sure. would necessarily have.
3: Sure, wow. I think that's also the key to. Um, understanding how to see Christ in scripture, or at least in, in the Hebrew Bible, is the focal point is the Messiah, right? Yeah. Like, that's the focal point. That's where we're tracking and we're watching how that's being fulfilled throughout uh, the, as the story plays out. Um, but as we look at Genesis, there's a word that's repeated, and for fear of being like the gentleman, uh, <laughs> <Chief> Macaday. Macaday. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the word is toledoth. Sure. And um what's why is that significant it keeps uh popping up and repeating so can we dive in a little bit to that
0: Sure remember i said there's three things that I want to point out um remember they don't have chapters and verses mm-hmm. so how would you know when a certain section starts and stops mm-hmm. okay so in every book every biblical book there's either a key phrase or there's literary cues to let you know start here stop here mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. Toledote is one of the ways where you can say, okay, this is a whole literary unit. So they were sophisticated, mm-hmm. just not the way we would tend to think. You know, mm-hmm. we, we need chapters and verses, right. but for them it was just the word, toledote.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so which that's the first what?
0: point. I was okay, <laughs> that's good, point. good question. So toledote comes from a verb which means to beget or to bring forth, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it can be translated in a variety of ways either a history Mm -hmm. um, or an account or a bringing forth or something that comes out of, okay? So every time you would see it, you could hear all these different nuances. You know, you could hear this is a historical account.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, it could be Moses's way of telling us this is not just a myth. Mm -hmm. This is a historical account. Mm -hmm. Um, You could also hear it as this is what comes out of The person, whoever they're talking about, this he is the progenitor. It's interesting. Yeah. In our English Bibles, we start the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve. Right. But if you read in the Hebrew, there is no toledot of Abraham. Mm. It's the toledot of his father, Mm. Terah. So, what is important about Abraham that he comes out of Terah?
2: Right.
0: You know. So, why do we put so much emphasis on Abraham? Because Paul.
2: Right. Uh-huh. You know, Paul
0: and Romans and, yeah. and Galatians. Um, and, I, of course, Abraham is important. Sure. <laughs> I don't want him to say, <laughs> what are you saying?
1: <laughs> so what was the point of them starting the Toledot with Terra instead of with Abraham?
0: Right. So remember, after the flood and then after the Tower of Babel experience, mm-hmm. how do you know who comes from where?
2: Right.
0: So Terra is the, your link back to Shem, mm. okay, and your link back to... Um, not him and not Japheth, but to Shem. Shem and then back to Adam. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you just started the narrative with Abraham, how do you, how would you make that historical connection that it's still in the line that God promised? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for us, again, we don't care about that. It's right. like,
2: yeah.
0: who's Tara? Who cares? Yeah. But for them, it's how do I connect Abraham mm. back to Shem, mm-hmm. back to Adam? Mm. Okay. So for them, it was important. So the narrative is written in a way for you to know, oh, there's a historical connection between these gentlemen. Mm.
3: Mm. Which is why in the New Testament, Matthew, who kind of starts out with a right. genealogy to help you trace right. the Messiah. Right. Mm.
1: Interesting. So I think a lot of times when we look at the New Testament, we see it as a place of grace instruction and faith, Uh, but we don't tend to look at the Old Testament that way. But you have kind of a a different opinion on that. So tell us about it.
0: Sure. So the word grace, if you look it up in the Bible, you can look this up in the English version. um, It occurs over and over and over in terms of God's character. Mm. So when the people in the New Testament first heard the word grace, it wouldn't be like, what does that mean? (laughs) No, it's, oh, this is just the historical um, application of God, Mm. who God is, what God has been doing, what God has revealed himself as. So if you look closely at the Genesis narrative, since we're in Genesis, it keeps telling us that these heroes of faith, if I could call them that, Mm -hmm. they found grace Mm -hmm. in the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So for them, everyone who is someone that we look up to as a a faithful um, Hebrew or Israelite, whatever you want to call them, they're always the beneficiaries of grace. Mm. You know, you don't have this concept of Israel trying to save itself by its works. That's a later anachronism something that was taken later and then put back onto the um, Hebrew Bible but if you said grace everyone would know what it was Mm -hmm. so then how do we relate grace to works and I wanted to point to Genesis 26 because it says something about Abraham so in Genesis earlier in Genesis we know it says that um, Abraham believe God and God counted it to him for righteousness, right? Right. Right. So there's a grace. He trusted God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Mm -hmm. Then later, listen to what it actually says about the exact same person, Abraham in Genesis 26, verse 5. He says, And your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, Mm -hmm. because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, if you know the word order, that actually occurs in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5. Mm. So the the relationship that you have between grace and works, I don't know if they would have called it that, Mm -hmm. is the beneficiary of grace always is faithful, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know. That's why Paul even says, because we have grace, do we then throw away Torah? No, he says, no, we establish it. Why? Because beneficiaries of grace always end up being obedient. Mm. Not to try to save themselves, but because that's how saved people live. Mm. So when we think about grace, um, I, I liken it to saying, when John talks about this in John chapter 1, Moses talked about it, but in Jesus, we actually see it walking on earth. Mm. So when he says Moses talked about Torah, but Jesus' is grace epitomized, that's how right. I see it. Not that there wasn't grace there, right. but that Moses, all he could do is write about it.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. But how do we know that it looks like? John tells us when you see Jesus, you see it manifested in a human being. Mm.
1: Mm. I love that. I love yeah. just kind of the the clearer more robust picture of the old testament and the way that there's not such this divide between old and new right, right. it's just this continuation of like grace instruction and faith continued but we have more revelation on it sure yeah and uh, i just want you to, to expound just a little bit more because i love this concept mm-hmm. of the seed and the threats to the promise and then yeah. god's salvation because you know we ended with like abraham but then there's this whole you know they go into egypt god talks about that how does that and i know we're getting past a little bit of Genesis, but like. When you look at the Pentateuch and, and the, and the Ark of the Pentateuch, um, how is God still, is he still working within that framework of like seed, threats, the promise, and what does that, how does that look like?
0: Sure. Um, the narrative in Genesis ends by giving a messianic promise, okay? So we know in Genesis 49, when Jacob is talking to Joseph, he's telling him, This is how things are, or actually he's talking to all his sons. This is how things are going to turn out. Okay. Mm. So he says, I'm going to explain something to you. Then he talks about Judah in terms of kingship. Mm. So that was like something, wait, what do you mean?
3: Right. (laughs)
0: Because Joseph, remember Joseph had that dream that people were going to bow to him. him, But then we see it actually given and promised through his son, Mm. Judah. Mm. Okay. Or excuse me, through his brother, Judah. If you keep reading the rest of the Pentateuch in Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 32 through 34, those promises are expanded
2: Mm -hmm. where
0: you have the promise of a seed. You have the territory that that seed is going to rule over. And then you have what that um, rulership is going to look like. It's interesting that the last promise given about the Messiah in the book of Deuteronomy talks about God... um, atoning for his people, Mm. okay? So the work of the Messiah that's explained in Isaiah 53 is really just an expansion of a concept that was given a lot earlier. Mm. So, again, these things are new to us because maybe we're not reading um, the way we should. No, I'm just Mm like It's... But for them, they would hear these connections probably first because of linguistics. They understand, you know, literary connections. This word is used earlier. Whereas in the English version, you can still um, see it. But when you hear it, it's a lot easier to pick up on those nuances. So that that whole concept of seed is why genealogies are so important. Mm. I was remember I told you I used to read 8 to 10 hours a day.
3: Yeah. Um, wow. Did you sleep? I
0: think I was sleeping part of it when I was reading <laughs> through the book of Numbers because I was like, right. Who cares? Why is genealogy important to my life? Mm. But again, if you're writing to a people and you want them to understand the historical trajectory of God's promise, they don't have smartphones, they don't have televisions, mm-hmm. what do you do? Mm. You have to make it crystal clear and beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm. Um, That the Messiah is coming from the line that God promised, which is why when you get to the book of Ezra, there are some people that are like, well, we don't know your genealogy. Sorry, you can't be a part. Right. Like Mm -hmm. for us, it's like the inhumanity. But again, (laughs) it's how do we know where the Messiah comes from? And that's why where the Hebrew Bible ends talking about genealogies, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the New Testament picks up Matthew 1, Luke 3 talking about the messiah can be traced back we have the genealogical records so we know there's a historical connection between the showing of the messiah and god's initial promise mm-hmm. so that's why for us again it, it may not be sexy it may not be <laughs> cutting edge and, and relevant for your everyday life but if you're reading the bible to understand the promise and the plan of god you'll say wow Look how careful God was mm. to make sure that His seed came the way that He promised.
3: Wow! Despite ourselves. Yeah. 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 So you alluded to this uh, a little bit already. Um, so just to to give some clarity. So by the end of Genesis, the promise of the Messiah, we basically see Jacob, Israel, right, giving the uh, giving this prophetic message to his to his children. Mm-hmm. And then we go to Exodus and they're in captivity. So the threat then is the slavery, right? right,
0: right. The threat would be annihilation. Oh, right. Because okay. remember, all the boys were killed. Right. And what does Matthew pick up on in his gospel?
3: Oh, All the boys, all boys being killed. killed. Yeah. And
0: he actually uses that typologically to say, mm. hey, remember when Satan tried to do it again? He's trying to do it mm. now. Mm. So, again, I think everyone in Jesus' time reading this narrative would automatically make that connection so we see pharaoh trying to snuff out um the promised line Mm. okay if you will what does god do he raises up moses and then you have this amazing story of this child who is saved who then comes and um, restores his people and then gets them back on track in terms of their historical mission to be the progenitors of the messiah Mm. Um, but that concept is all the way through the Hebrew Bible. In fact, why does God tell Rehoboam, David's, or Solomon's son, excuse me, that he's gonna keep one line alive? He could have just wiped them out or given them all to Jeroboam, right. mm. he says, but for David and for the sake of the promise that he made to him.
3: Mm. Right. So
0: again, God, despite human flaws and failures, God says, I'm gonna bring my plan to fruition, sure. even if it means I have to deal with people like me. You know. Right. So
1: I really love the conciseness of that type of framework that people can have that and look through the Bible and not think every chapter they're changing the channel and it's something new. And sure. how do I follow to be like, this is my anchor that I'm going to hold through the whole narrative. What's something you'd like to leave our audience with today as they're reading through the Old Testament or they're reading through the Bible? What is something that you would share with them?
0: That you know the end of the story. Hmm. I think for those who are initially reading these books, there was a sense... Okay, Mm -hmm. how do all these parts, it looks like moving parts, how do we see it um, together? But for us, we have the benefit of the whole whole canon, if you will. Mm. So we can say, okay, so we know Jesus comes from this place, you know, in this situation to do this work. So now when I'm reading the Hebrew Bible, I'm saying, how do the parts fit into that story? Mm. Okay, so it's you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know what's going to happen. Now the journey becomes, God, how do I understand how you are working in history to bring about your intended result? So along the journey, he's going to teach you about faith.
2: Mm. You know,
0: he's going to teach you about hope. He's going to teach you about love. It's going to teach you about disobedience and how disobedience actually frustrates the plan. If you notice, mm. with the kings of Israel especially, mm. like that whole book, it's actually one book. We just call it 1st and 2nd Kings. That whole book is how God keeps it together despite these wicked people, right. you know. Um, so that teaches me to be humble, you know, because I'm not up here thinking that I have arrived, yeah you know, I know there's many things that God does in my life, in spite of, yeah, so like I said, the big picture is we're pointing towards the Messiah, but along the way, God is going to show us some things about ourselves, and if mm-hmm. we're good listeners, I think um while falling in love with the hope of the Messiah, that we're also learning how gracious God is to people like us.
1: Mm-hmm. We're so glad you joined us this week as we finish our discussion with Dr. Jerome Skinner on understanding Genesis messianically. Recommended reading for this week if you want to learn more about this topic is a dense but very insightful book called International Bible Commentary on Genesis by Dr. Ducon. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible as well as our guest, Dr. Jerome Skinner. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at Abbott Next. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.